Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The check is in the mail for schools, for states, for restaurants, and oh yes, for 90% of American households. This is a special stimulus edition of Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. President Biden pledged to get the virus under control and get Americans vaccinated, a priority that is reflected in the stimulus package. Everything in the American Rescue Plan addresses a real need, including investments to fund our entire vaccination effort, more vaccines, more vaccinators, and more vaccination sites. About 7% of the $1.9 trillion will go toward the country's pandemic response, including testing, contact tracing, and vaccine distribution. The government is not alone in its efforts to get people vaccinated. In North Carolina, Honeywell has been partnering with Atrium, one of the largest healthcare systems in the country. We asked CEO Eugene Woods how the campaign to get shots in arms is going. Yeah, the challenge has been from the beginning is getting enough vaccines. I think uh, you see uh, things ramping up, and so we're excited about that. Now, really, it's just a, it's a distribution issue. I do have concerns that we need to, to, to take a state like North Carolina. We have about 10 million people in North Carolina. Uh, if you take out the 2 million that are 16 and under, we've got to vaccinate about um, you know 90% to get uh, herd, herd immunity. So that's 8 million. So that's about 7 million or so that we need to get vaccinated. And we've gotten uh, 1.5 shots in arms, 1.5 million shots in arms so far. So we, we still got a ways to go. That said, we went from about the bottom 15 in terms of states to number one uh, last week in terms of um, over 65 getting shots in arms. So we're going to continue this path. And as, as supply becomes more plentiful, I think we're going to be able to continue uh, to use ba- mass vaccination sites to, to get 
shots and arms before this this variant comes into play, which is what concerns me. Are you getting any resistance at all? Because we hear some descriptions that could be 15, 20, even 25 percent of the population that just isn't really interested in getting vaccinated. Yeah, that's the challenge, right? So if you think about herd immunity, depending on what scientists you talk about, we need to get about 90 percent of the population vaccinated. Uh, right now, there's about a, a hesitancy about about 30 percent that I'm hearing uh, the mm-hmm. latest statistics. So to get 90%, we have to eat into that 30%, about 20%, right? And so that's the work that we're doing right now. There are some glimmers of hope. Um, African-Americans, for example, um, who have had, uh, for all very good reasons, a mistrust of the healthcare system, back in November, uh, 40% said they were going to get the vac- uh, vaccine. The, the most recent numbers I saw said 60%. So we're beginning to make some progress, but there's still work to, to so, be done. So address that question very specifically, because I know in New York, for example, that there's a disproportionate number number of African-Americans and Latinx individuals who are more at risk, disproportionate number who haven't gotten the vaccine yet. They are under-indexing. Is that true in North Carolina at this point? It's true all over the country, unfortunately. And that's why you've got to be really, really intentional about your strategies to reach those uh, communities of color. So, for example, we have roving bands that uh, we're working with this coalition of churches. There are about 60 churches. They're African-American and Latinx. And so we're going to their parking lots and, and we're, we're uh, really saying, tell us where we need to go. And in our roving bands, and think about a physician office basically on wheels and we go to where, where we're needed, 74% of the people that we're vaccinating are people of color. And then when when we've done the mass vaccination events, say at Bank of America Stadium, we preferentially open the schedule to those churches and other uh, other vulnerable communities. So you've got to be really intentional about the strategy. The one thing that I'm proud working together with Honeywell, the Panthers and Motor Speedway, we put together a playbook. Uh, Andy Slavitt, who's on the uh, President Biden's uh, coronavirus task force, asked for sort of what are the key lessons learned? And so we shared that a couple of weeks ago. He shared that with the governors. Uh, and we're hoping that, that there's some in sites there that can help uh, the, the country do this well. So, Gene, if you would take a, a half step back here from the specifics of the vaccination and talk about health care provision more generally in this time of pandemic and beyond. We now have a new stimulus bill, $1.9 trillion, has a fair amount of money in there actually to subsidize some uh, of the, the exchanges so that people can afford health care. Do you see a shift going on because of the stimulus bill in your business? Yeah, I mean, I think we're really excited that the stimulus bill has a number of important provisions, including, you know, additional dollars for, for, for distribution of the vaccine. And there's some other uh, uh, parts of that that includes helping some of these community-based centers that are really been struggling and, and also rural care. So we're, we're excited about that. The, what we didn't see in that is additional uh, relief for providers. Uh, and to the extent that we would hope, we've been on the front line of this health systems, and so we're still not out of the woods. So we're, we're hoping to work with the administration to have other uh, opportunities for providing additional support to, the, to health systems like ours because we're still very much in the battle. What about the cost of health care? Uh, we hear from some people that with the move to telehealth, which seems to have really ramped up during the pandemic, that we may actually finally be able to bend that cost curve a little bit. Do you, are you finding that in North Carolina? Yeah, I mean, I think we could spend the next hour talking about the cost of health care and affordability. We, we do know that it's a multifactorial uh, issue that includes pharma, that includes insurance companies, includes providers. We all own a piece of that. But I think that what we learned during the pandemic is that we can provide care in vastly different ways. Uh, for example, we started um, when we when we had some challenges with occupancy, bed occupancy, we started this hospital at home program. We've seen 50,000 patients in their home during this COVID. Uh, and that's just a, a different sort of way to deliver. Care. So we really think the learnings that we've had through this through this past year will carry forward and among other things will we'll help with the affordability of health care. 
That was Atrium Health CEO Eugene Woods. Coming up, what the stimulus package will mean for the states and what the $360 billion they get will pay for from Ned Lamont, governor of the state of Connecticut. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. One of the most controversial parts of the $1.9 trillion package is the aid for state and local governments, with Democrats insisting it's badly needed to make up for lost revenues and for increased costs they've incurred because of the pandemic. That has led to more than a million state and municipal employees losing their jobs. About one-fifth of the $1.9 trillion stimulus package will go to states and local governments. The CARES Act, signed into law a year ago, included $150 billion in aid to states and localities. This time, they are getting $350 billion and an additional $10 billion to put toward critical infrastructure projects. Here's New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy. We need a big chunk of state and local aid, and we're not alone. This is every American state. That sounds abstract. But what that means is keeping the frontline workers, police, fire, educators, healthcare workers uh, employed in their position, delivering the services that our residents so desperately need. But Republicans take a very different view, saying the state assistance amounts to a bailout of states that have run up their bills under Democratic leadership. It was not a focused bill, a targeted bill. We need to help the people who have lost their jobs. We need to help our small businesses. But no, it was a payback to New York and California. I mean, think about what they've done with these state bailouts. That's Senator Rick Scott of Florida. And it does appear that, at least when it comes to revenue losses, different states have had very different experiences. Here's Jamie Dimon from J.P. Morgan Chase. Half the states, revenues went up. They didn't go down. Do they need help? So they should be cautious about overdoing it. Get us through the prom, get the country growing, but you know, don't try not to overdo it too much. According to the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, states and localities have received $360 billion from the federal government since the beginning of the pandemic. But states say they need more assistance because much of the funding provided to them has been limited to specific programs like Medicaid. Again, Senator Rick Scott. Our state revenues are equal to what the year, the year before. And they gave more to states like New York and California than states like my home state of Florida. 
But, I mean, it, it makes no sense how unfair this, this is to the American public. Whatever the merits, in the end, about one-fifth of the $1.9 trillion stimulus package will go to states and local governments. We asked Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont why his state needed the money. Look, we know that we've um, got our budget set for the next couple of years. We know that we don't have to raise any taxes. We know that there won't be any broad layoffs. And that's all thanks to the uh, state and local aid. But uh, more importantly, I love what we're doing on education. We have um, our schools have been open since September, but we still have 30, 40 percent of our kids who haven't been in the classroom for um, nine months. We've got a lot of catching up to do. And it's a chance to make sure that wasn't a lost year. We can build off of it. So what are you going to do with the money that you get? I mean, as a practical matter, you just mentioned employment issues, uh, your budget and taxes. But where's the money really going to go? Where are you going to spend it? Well, first of all, on education, I can tell you the school year doesn't end on uh, June 25th. It restarts again on, uh, you know, July 6th. And we're going to have a lot of um, activities in and around camps and learning and experiential. A lot of kids who really haven't been with their peers in a long time, doing everything you can to help them catch up. Maybe bring some college kids in as apprentice teachers to help them learn and have role models there. And then come the fall, we'd have uh, after-school activities, social workers, and help these kids hit the ground running. Uh, is there any consideration at all of extending the school year? Absolutely. I mean, whether I legally extend the school year or just say starting July 10th, we're going to have uh, two months of summer programs, we'll figure out how to phrase that. So if it's in fact the case that the schools are open, but you don't have all the students back in the classroom, what is the barrier? Why aren't they back in the classroom? It's, it's sort of tragic, David. I mean, in our suburban towns, our, our more rural towns, predominantly white towns, 90% of the kids are back. But a lot of the kids in our urban centers, um, small as they may be, more likely to be uh, children of color, they were hit particularly hard, or their families were, by COVID, and they've been uh, a lot more reluctant to get back. But now we got our teachers vaccinated, our health care um, Frontline and the schools are uh, vaccinated. They're calling up the kids saying, come back for the final two months. It's worth it. Are all your teachers back or essentially all your teachers back? Yeah, essentially they're all back. Uh, what other effects do you have? And talk about employment, because we saw in the last employment numbers for the country, the place where we really lost a lot was actually in state and local employees. What's happening in the employment situation in Connecticut? Where are you compared to a year ago? Where are you going? In terms of um, you know, actual state employees, that number has been trending down for quite some time. And, and frankly, I don't see us ramping up a lot. It's not COVID related, but we're making more investments in a computer technology so we uh, can be a lot more efficient and less cost. I'll tell you the other thing I'm really excited about, David, is uh, the money for daycare and child care. We uh, lost a lot of um, employees in the service industry, overwhelmingly women, often women of color. And um, the fact that we're going to have heavily subsidized or even free daycare and childcare, uh, you know, for the rest of this year can make a big difference in helping them get back into the workforce. Uh, Governor, um, what about infrastructure? Because one of the things we've heard about is not only a promise, perhaps there's infrastructure coming down the pike, but also that some of the money going to state and local government could be used for infrastructure. Is that true in Connecticut? Uh, that is. It's, it's not big dollars for infrastructure. We need that infrastructure bill going through. And we've got old infrastructure here in the Northeast. As you know, um, this stuff was all built, uh, you know, 60, 80 years ago. So uh, what I've got our Department of Transportation doing right now is doing the design, build, engineering, ready to go. So when uh, the federal government says, here's our infrastructure plan, it'll be funded 80-20, Connecticut can get in the front of the line and get some of that. 
Give us an update, if you could, Governor, on where COVID is in the state of Connecticut. I've been sort of watching the positivity rates, and they've been coming down for you. Where are you in terms of the extent of the disease in the state and restrictions? So when it comes to, um, you know, infection rate, like the rest of the country, we've come down. It's not down to, you know, 1%. It's uh, hovering around 3%. But the good news, David, which people ought to pay more attention to is uh, they tend to be younger people who are a little more likely to be the ones who are infected now. Um, folks 55 and over are overwhelmingly vaccinated or will be in the next 10 days or so. So we have a lot less infection, a lot less complications with the most at-risk group. So I think even though we have sort of a 3%, 2 to 3% infection rate, um, it's not really impacting our hospitals, emergency rooms, ICUs, fatalities. That, those numbers continue to get better. Where are you on the restrictions? Texas, of course, and Mississippi have just taken them all off. It's only voluntary. Where is Connecticut? I think I heard on the radio that you're going back to 100% in restaurants. Is that right? Yeah, that is true. We're doing, a, you know, restaurants, retail, houses of worship at 100% occupancy. But we're maintaining the mask requirement and we're maintaining the six foot of distancing. That was Democratic Governor Ned Lamont of Connecticut. Coming up, everyone agrees that it's important to get children back to school. But what does it take to do that safely? Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, says the stimulus package is the lifeline the education system needed. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Education in the time of the pandemic has been hard on teachers and students. Schools across the country would try to reopen only to be forced to close again when COVID-19 cases spiked. Here's Senator Ben Cardin of Maryland. Our schools need to open safely and be able to remain open safely. The American Rescue Plan sets aside about $130 billion to help K-12 schools reopen by funding improvements to ventilation systems and buying personal protective equipment. There's a lot of resources and energy focused on making sure that we contain the pandemic and, importantly, that schools can open safely so that all of those parents can get back to work knowing that their children are, are learning what they need to learn in school. That's Heather Boucher, member of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. While parents are eager to get children back to school, some teachers' unions have resisted a return to in-person classes for fear of new waves of COVID cases. Here's Wall Street Week's special contributor, Larry Summers. Entrenched, uh, well, I'll say it, uh, teacher union interests that have resisted going back to school have really been putting their own material benefit ahead of uh, the interests of their kids. And that is not the best tradition of the teaching profession. Teachers were forced to shift their lesson plans online abruptly when lockdowns were imposed last year. According to the Economic Policy Institute, a third of surveyed educators felt that the training they received for online learning was not useful. We can understand and help our teachers use technology in, in more uh, fulsome ways and more effective ways. And we can take leadership at the federal level around broadband and device ubiquity. That's former Education Secretary Margaret Spellings. Access to devices and consistent Internet also deepened longstanding racial and economic disparities in students. Here's Robin Hood Foundation CEO Wes Moore. You know, when, when, when schools closed, and in New York City alone, you know, 300,000 school children lacked access to devices. 
Under the $1.9 trillion stimulus plan, colleges and higher education institutions would get almost $40 billion toward financial aid grants for students. Again, Margaret Spellings. We have just a wide variety from gigantic little cities in our flagship universities to you know, very customized learning at smaller liberal arts colleges or HBCUs or uh, MSIs, uh, et cetera. And so, yes, they're all under strain. They're all under financial challenge. Randy Weingarten has become the face of teachers unions in the United States, having served as president of the American Federation of Teachers for over 20 years. So we asked her straight up, is it the unions who are keeping our school children out of classrooms? You know, we did a poll in February, early February, um, and asked our members if we got what the AFT had been proposing for a long time and then layered on with, with vaccines, meaning if we were able to have the mitigation strategies that CDC says is important, that is also important in all of these new studies that show that kids can go back. If we had the testing like the NFL had so that you could not only reopen but stay open because you were managing and seeing asymptomatic spread, which is what is most of the spread here, and if we had vaccine access. So mitigation, testing, and vaccines, 88% of my members said that they were willing to be in school with a plan like that because they know how important it is for kids to be in school and do in-school learning. So it's always been not an either or for us. It's always a, a, a both and. How do we make school sure that in-school learning is safe so that we can make it safe for everyone. It's a lot safer than it was, though, isn't it? I mean, for example, in Cleveland, uh, there's a priority given to vaccinations for teachers. A has it moved a long way in the direction you need to get to? Because yes. most parents are saying, when do we get our kids back to, into the classroom? Yes, it's moved. I mean, I think what you've seen is we've learned a lot last September and October. I mean, the difficulty, David, was that Trump refused to do any of the things that we asked him to do that the doctors and the experts told us we needed. I, you know, I tease a lot that I'm a social studies teacher and a lawyer. I don't even play a scientist on TV. <laughs> I have to listen to the scientists in terms of what they tell us we need. And, and what happened was we asked Trump and DeVos, would you get us data? Would you get us the guidance in a, in a real and transparent way? And would you get us the resources? They basically said no to all of it and just created the polarization. But you had districts and you now have some of the CDC reports that kept on trying different things in the fall. We learned a lot from them. Biden, the new president, is getting us the things we need, the, 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 the mitigation strategies, the resources for them. And that's why you're seeing so many districts now reopening. And we now have less than 20 percent, less than 15 percent of districts that are still all virtual. So there's been a sea change in the last, I would say, two or three months, led by New York City, now Chicago, pretty soon L.A., and, and lots of small cities in between. That was Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers. Coming up, we take a look at just how historic this stimulus package really is, with special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard and Neil Ferguson of the Hoover Institution. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. 
While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The idea that it's prosperity that causes inflation may not have any factual support in history, but since when did facts ever interfere with Washington policymaking? That was Louis Ruckheiser back in January of 2001. 20 years later, that debate over what causes inflation is dividing economists and policymakers once again in a time of easy money and a $1.9 trillion infusion of support into the economy. We asked economist and Wall Street Week special contributor Larry Summers and historian Hoover Institution's Neil Ferguson about what we can learn from the history of inflation. Well, I think it's uh, part of a continuum of uh, acts by uh, democratic administrations that have expanded the role uh, of of government uh, in alleviating poverty and economic hardship. So you can trace a a continuous line, if you want, from uh, the New Deal through Lyndon Johnson's Great Society to this. But there's a difference. Uh, This is a very, very large amount of money relative uh, to uh, the US uh, economy. And it implies very large deficits by the standards of of peacetime. Remember, uh, the CBO uh, put last year's deficit at close to 15% of GDP, and its latest projection uh, for this year's is around 10%. These are very large uh, deficits in peacetime, and they come at a time when the federal debt has reached its highest level since the end of World War II. So I think there is a kind of uh, key question here, which really has to do with the macroeconomic uh, implications of pouring quite a lot of fiscal fuel on the fire of an economy that is already coming back rapidly from the pandemic, thanks to vaccination and our our rapid approach of herd immunity. Now, I'm treading uh, into Larry's uh, minefield of of macro here, so I'm going to step back and let him comment. But I I do think that the historical significance is is really in, in terms of scale, and the timing of such a large uh, fiscal stimulus to the economy. So, so Larry, we've heard something similar from you in the past. Now that we have the bill really enacted into law, what's the best thing that can happen because of this and the worst from an economics point of view? Let me just say on the democratic tradition, there's a thing here, the refundable child credit, which is less than 5% of the total stimulus that we're providing this year will almost certainly be continued and will make an immense contribution to reducing child poverty in America. And it's a very, very positive thing and a huge 
historic achievement. But it's 5% or less of the total stimulus this year, and it's something that will continue. I think the decision to put $1.9 trillion of stimulus on top of $950 billion of stimulus will set the economy on fire with growth at 7% or more uh, this year, assuming we progress against COVID, and I think is playing with fire. A simple view would be that I think there's a one-third chance that the Fed will stay behind uh, the curve, inflation expectations will ratchet upwards, and will become a inflationary country for at least a time above the 2% uh, target. Um, a second risk is that the Fed will respond, that given all the things they've been saying, their sharp response will be unexpected by markets. And as has been the case in the past, when the Fed has had to step in to stop an incipient inflation or incipient bubble, it will be a chaotic process with very substantial instability and possible recession. And I think there's a one-third chance that somehow the needle will be threaded and that we will um, enjoy a period of very rapid uh, growth and there will be a smooth exit back to reasonably rapid, uh, reasonable, okay uh, growth. But I think that we are taking very substantial risks, both on the inflation side and on the fiscal monetary collision side. That's why uh, if things continue on trend, the interest rate in the first quarter of this year will have gone up faster than in any year in the last century, uh, except for uh, 1980. That's why you see uh, increasing numbers of indicators pointing uh, to more rapid inflation, pointing to the development of uh, possible uh, labor, uh, labor shortage. Uh, so I think there are very substantial risks on the path that we are on. Neil, you wrote a piece, a terrific piece for Bloomberg Opinion, actually, on the subject of the history of inflation, going back to Milton Friedman, what happened in the 60s and the 70s. I must say, I have youngsters in the newsroom who come up to me and say, I wasn't around for inflation last time. How does it work? Are we in <laughs> danger? What do you say to those people? Is this in any way parallel to what we saw in the 60s and the 70s? Well, I think it's worth looking at the 1960s because I suspect uh, younger people have a pretty hazy idea of what happened uh, with inflation before they were born. And uh, the typical view, uh, in my experience, is, well, that was something that happened in the 1970s because of the oil shock. That's not quite right, actually, because what happened in the 60s uh, was that in the first half of the decade, uh, inflation was uh, low, stayed well below 2%. Uh, and then in the mid-60s, it took two big jumps, uh, first up to 3%, then up to 6%. And that, that was the moment that inflation expectations became unanchored, as we would 
now say. And I, I think the key here is what can we learn from that experience? So that was an increase in inflation that predated the 1973 events that caused the oil shock. Uh, and it's often blamed on mistakes by the Federal Reserve. That was the view of the late Alan Meltzer in his history uh, of the period. And indeed, people at the Fed at the time acknowledged by 1968 that they'd got it wrong. Now, the monetarist view was that monetary aggregates had been growing too fast, and that was the reason things went wrong. My view as an historian is that that's kind of a simplistic view. It's almost tautological to say that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, which was Friedman's view. Uh, it, it's partly a fiscal phenomenon. And this is, of course, what Larry has been arguing in his recent uh, commentary, that if you do really large uh, fiscal deficits, uh, that has potentially inflationary consequences. But the key is expectations. The Fed today seems to have a theory that inflation expectations will not be affected if there is a temporary bump in inflation in the second half of this year or the beginning of next year. I don't think that's historically very well founded. The lesson of the 60s is that if you do the great society, if you do butter and then you do guns as well, which was Vietnam, then you can get inflation expectations uh, unanchored. And I, I tried to make the point in this piece because I don't want to be called an inflationista a second time. I plead guilty to having been more worried than I should have been about inflation back in 2010. I think what made the 60s different is that they were losing a war in Vietnam. And we're really not in any comparable military engagement. You know, Afghanistan, yeah, we're still there, but the presence is, is tiny. I think what would change the game today and I want to emphasize this point, would be if the US and China suddenly got into a serious foreign policy crisis uh, over, say, Taiwan or the South China Sea. That historically is the kind of thing that time and again has caused inflation expectations to jump. And I have a chart in the piece which goes all the way back to 1688 for the UK, showing that nearly every time inflation expectations in the UK surged, it was because of a war and usually a war that was going wrong. So, so Larry, uh, as I recall, you're one third, one third, one third. You had two thirds with inflation that something needed to be done about, whether it was or not. The first one was it gets out of control. The second one was the Fed has to act too sharply. Is there a way, what is the proper way for the Fed to manage that right now to avoid those two alternatives? I think they need to become much more attentive in their rhetoric to the risks of uh, inflation and the need for action. The Fed traditionally makes clear that it's going to be preemptive with respect to assuring uh, price stability, limited inflation. Now the Fed is mostly concerned with preempting the possibility that it would have to raise rates by explaining how if there is inflation, it will just be transient uh, and so forth, by directing attention not just to employment goals, but to employment goals for specific uh, demographic uh, groups. Thanks to former Treasury Secretary and Wall Street Week special contributor Larry Summers and Hoover Institution senior fellow Neil Ferguson. Finally, one more thought. What difference does a day make here or there? On Wednesday, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki insisted that it was the 49th day of the Biden presidency. That conveniently made the president's primetime address the next day fall exactly halfway into his first 100 days, a time that he set as a milestone for getting a lot done, including getting 100 million Americans vaccinated. Axios, Axios picked up on it. They noted that whether it was really 49 or 50 days, depending on whether you counted his inauguration day as his first day in office. 
and dimly echoed that early dispute, remember it, between the Trump White House and the press corps over how many people really attended President Trump's 2016 inauguration. But whether it was 49 or 50 or even 51 days, no one can deny that the Biden administration has done something bigger and faster than just about anybody could have predicted. Something on the order of President Obama's stimulus plan to pull us out of the great financial crisis, or even, even President Roosevelt's New Deal package to pull us out of the Great Depression. History will judge the consequences, but will likely forget the exact timeline, just as it's long forgotten that FDR's first 100 days radio address, well, it actually happened on day 143 of his administration. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.